0: Mac Power Users Episode Five Hundred and Fifty-One: Writing Music for the Picture Business with David Metzger. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, joined by my pal, Mr. Stephen Hackett. How are
1: you, Stephen? I am good. It's uh, it's another week and another MPU.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited about this one. We have a special guest. I can't wait to introduce him in just a minute. But before we do, how are things going with the St. Jude uh, fundraiser?
1: Yeah, it's going well. So we are uh, now a couple weeks into it, right on the verge of September, which I think is when we really kick it into overdrive. Uh, If you haven't heard about this, uh, if you're not familiar with St. Jude, it's a children's research hospital, actually in my hometown of Memphis. It's like 20 minutes from my house. And in September, Relay honors Childhood of Cancer Awareness Month by raising money for St. Jude. And you may think, well, it's like a random charity in Memphis. Uh, well, it's, it's not. It's a hospital that treats children uh, and really takes care of their whole family without regard to their ability to pay, where they're from, what they believe, anything like that. And they saved the life of my oldest son, uh, who had a brain tumor when he was a baby, and now he is in fifth grade. And that's because of the work at St. Jude. So we would love your support. You can go to stjude.org slash relay and, uh, and you can follow the network on Twitter. We're going to be announcing live streams and different events throughout the month of September.
0: Yeah. Lots of events going on. We are uh, so proud to be a part of it. I, I feel honored that uh, we could, Mac power users can play a small role in this and MPU audience. This is, this is our ask, you know, help us out. Yep. Go to stjude.org slash relay donate some money we want to beat last year we don't care that there's a pandemic going on we still want to do better than last year so just put some money in there uh i'll be making my contribution here shortly and i can't wait to see uh how well we can do this month all right so this guest my my wife and i are fans of disney as you may know and of course we have the disney plus channel and so we were watching the making of the frozen 2 movie which you know sounds boring But it was fascinating to see these people with these uh, extraordinary expectations against them. You know, that first movie just kind of blew the roof off. So they wanted to make a sequel.
1: Dude, I watched it 137 times with my kids.
0: Yeah, exactly. But as a parent, I'll tell you, watching the making of it is, it's fascinating because, you know, it's a study in pressure. These people are trying to live up to the first one. And how do you do that? You know, how do you not make the second one a complete failure? But as part of the process, at one point they get into the music and uh, there's this guy in his studio up in Oregon and he's got all this gear and he's the guy who scores the whole film. He takes all the music, he puts it together. They eventually end up in the recording studio with the orchestra and he had a Apple keyboard under his key right under his piano keyboard And all of a sudden, I start seeing like little pieces of Apple gear all over the place. And I can tell this guy's a nerd. And I'm like, I want to talk to this guy. And it turns (laughs) out he's one of us, and he agreed to come on the show. So welcome to the show, David Metzger. Thank you very much, David. Thanks for inviting me and and having me on the show. Yeah. uh, So David has a a rich history of... uh, uh, composing and arranging movies. He's done this work on include frozen Moana the Simpsons, August rush night at the museum, captain America, lion King, wreck it. Ralph. He's also done stuff for Broadway. He's a Tony nominated, uh, for scoring the, the lion King on Broadway. He's done frozen. He's currently working on a version of August rush for Broadway. Uh, first, first David, I can't believe that you made time for us. Cause I know how busy you are. <laughs>
2: Well, you know, I mean, when I'm not really invited to do things like this very often, and so when I am, it's it's um, actually a a huge honor to me because I I usually am kind of the hidden guy in in the whole process, and so so it uh, when when you first reach out to me, it was like, oh my gosh, somebody actually is interested in what I do.
1: (laughs) I mean that that is an interesting point, David. I agree with you. I love making ofs. Like I will always watch those and. I mean, it's amazing how many people with amazing talent and specific knowledge go into making these massive projects, right? We just think about the people we see on the screen, but there's a an army of amazing people making it all possible. It's really cool to kind of peek behind the curtain a little bit.
0: Yeah, and the music part of it, and we're going to go deep into David's workflow, but it's all on Apple technology, but, you know, you take a little ditty, you know, a little melody, but then you got to turn that into a piece for, you know, a big multi-piece orchestra and horn section. You've got to arrange it and score it. And uh this is all Apple stuff behind the scenes doing this. And it's it's just great. Yeah, it's it's um, you know, Apple's made my life massively easier and better and more creative. And so I'm a huge fan. And we're gonna get into it during the episode, but one of the the things about this is people that do the work David do are some of the biggest power users of Apple hardware, because to score this, they have all these files with all these individual wave files for each note on each instrument. And the compute power for what he's doing is quite extraordinary so we're going to be talking about that too but before we move on the one more thing about your background this is the part where steven has got he's standing off stage with that you know that hook you know getting ready to pull (laughs) me out but but the one thing in your because i was looking at your wikipedia and this turned into a whole thread of emails between us and and phone conversations (laughs) but um when i was in high school you know i was a big into jazz as listeners know and and i did with the state jazz band i did all the stuff but there was this guy, this trumpet player named Maynard Ferguson, which if you've never heard of him, he means nothing to you, but he was this jazz player who was famous for hitting remarkably high notes on the trumpet. He started with Stan Kenton and he had his own band. And when I was in high school, we all worshiped Maynard. I mean, I mean Maynard had a gap between his teeth. And I remember trumpet players saying, ah, oh, that's why he can hit those high notes. And people <laughs> thinking about like putting a gap in their teeth just to hit the notes And then of course Maynard got some money and he got his teeth fixed and everybody's like, well, that wasn't it, you know, but the, uh, but anyway, David was his arranger. So on top of, you know, these, you know, uh, Oscar movies that he's worked on, he also worked with Maynard Ferguson. And I just have to acknowledge that.
2: (laughs) Oh yeah. Well that was actually, as, as we went back and forth on our emails, it was one of the kind of cool things of my earlier career because Maynard had been a huge idol, of mine as well. And when I was in high school and so having the opportunity to actually work with him and write, write some charts for him was, was one of the, the
0: cool things in my twenties. All right. We got to put one Maynard song in the show notes for, uh, for the listeners. What's the one or actually, is there one recorded that you arranged that you particularly like? Yeah, actually I think the one that probably was the, the longest running that he
2: played all the way up until he passed away was, uh, my arrangement of, but beautiful, which is a uh, a classic jazz chart. And uh, so that, that one is actually the one that I'm probably the most proud of uh, um, uh, in my uh, work
0: with Maynard. All right, we'll put that in, but we're also going to put Lafayette cool. in because you've got to have one. There you just go. Maynard <laughs> blowing it All right. So I'll put those right. in the show notes. If you guys have any interest in Maynard Ferguson, I have now got out my system. I think we're safe now, Steven.
1: That's <laughs> yeah, cool. Let's talk about computers. <laughs>
0: so computers, uh, David, uh, you are an Apple guy and it goes back a while. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with uh, Apple computers?
2: Yeah. Well, I kind of, I think my first exposure that I really remember was, uh, to an Apple II and that probably would have been around 1980 or 81. And I didn't own it, but I remember, um, I had a friend who had one, and it just seemed like kind of the future. And uh, I I am old enough to where I kind of learned the first parts of music, or my, my first exposure to music was before computers, at least my, you know, they, before they were common. And so I did everything by hand up to a certain point. Um, but though, then when I saw computers kind of come around, I... Um, personal computers, I realized, well, this is kind of the future and it wouldn't be a bad idea to kind of learn how they work and see, because even though at that point they really couldn't do a whole lot in as far as music goes, I could see that that there was a potential there to, um, you know, to really, you know, be fascinating. And to be honest, the first computer I owned was, was not an Apple. um, And I hope that's okay. I hope I'm not going to be banished, but (laughs) but let let me guess,
0: was it an Atari ST?
2: how did you know <laughs> because that was
0: the one with the built-in midi ports all the musicians exactly started right. with that yeah
2: that's exactly right i had a 1040 st and i got i i think i was like the first week that they were out i got one because i just i you know it just seemed like um yeah because it had the built-in midi and it had a whole as i recall i had a whole megabyte of ram in, in the machine and, uh, just all those, uh, um, kind of, uh, great specs back in the day, you know, and it had the built-in floppy drive. That was the other thing that was kind of cool. But, uh, um, uh, and I want to say, was that like 85 or 86 maybe? Um, yeah, it seems like it was kind of time. the mid eighties. Yeah. 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 So, so I had the other thing about, about, um, the Atari is that it, it had a program, uh, and I think it was called Sempty Track. And so they also then um, I believe Steinberg made that program. I, I might be wrong, but, but it came with a Simpty box. And so SIMTY was what allowed back, back in those days to be able to sync synchronize the computer with, um, with tape, you know, uh, like two inch uh, recording tape. It was before really hard drive, hard disk recording was, uh, was really viable. And so, um, so that was another cool thing about the Atari is it had a great way to sync up um, to a computer, but um, so I used that for a couple of years. And then I I kind of realized um, I think the, the main instigator for me to really buy my first Mac was a program called Finale. And that's a notation software. So it's putting notes on the page. And I when I first saw the first version of that, I realized again, that was that was like the future. And it was something I really needed to do. And so I um so I bought my first Mac was an S E and i don't really remember the specs on it but that would have probably been kind of like 98 or 88 1988 i think it would have been and it was so frustrating at times because it was so slow to process anything you know and and uh um but i um uh realized again that that was my inroad to finale so i was able to start with finale fairly quickly after it had been released Uh, And start working on notation stuff. So in that SE, then I remember I I hot-rodded it at one point where I got a processor upgrade that you had to kind of like really crack open the machine. And and you were kind of like taking, you you know, your life in your hands sort of Mm -hmm. as far as (laughs) shorting everything out, you know, and all of a sudden the computer's dead, you know.
0: Yeah. I mean, people today don't realize, like back then Yo, when yeah. we upgraded our computer, it often involved a soldering iron. I mean, and I'm not like exactly. exaggerating. Yeah. That, that's exactly right.
1: So Finale is actually still around. They're in version 26. Is that still in your life today? Is it held on through the years? Well, you
2: know, um, it is still around. It's on my computer I actually um, migrated away about maybe 12 years ago. I went over to the kind of the competing program called Sibelius. Um, But though I still have to use Finale once in a while, uh, um, a lot of Broadway work is still actually in Finale. And it's kind of amazing to me that that program is still around and it's still viable because the code, you know, a lot of the base code is still like that original stuff from back in the 80s. And it's kind kind of stunning that they've been able to to keep it as a viable and uh, vibrant program. But, uh, but so I, I kind of moved away to Sibelius and I don't know how, what kind of order you want to do this in, but, um, but I moved away just because it seemed like it had a better workflow for me at, at one point. And I had a colleague recommend it, but, uh, mm-hmm. but I was kind of a finale nerd actually um, in, in throughout the nineties, I wrote a book on how to uh, arrange jazz charts jazz band charts in finale. So I really was a deep diver, um, in the, uh, um, kind of earlier stages of, of the program. And it was the kind of deal where I would just read the manual. The manual is like a thousand pages long or something, right. you know, and I, it, it, it was that deal where every night, you know, that was my reading material in bed. You know, I'd, I'd read like I'd, I'd, um, read another chapter of, you know, like, and, and always be looking for ways to improve my workflow. And, uh, and learn the little hidden things. And and Finale was notorious for everything was was deep dive menu driven. You know, so you'd you'd have to drill down through like ten dialogue boxes to get to where you really wanted to. Back in the early days, and and so you you know you had to learn how what you had to do to get to those. But uh, anyway, so I um, used that SE and hot rodded it and, and got as much life out of it as I could. And and uh, eventually started moving through the other Macs uh of the uh the 90s and I kind of remember I think I had a Centris. Do you guys remember remember that like Centris computers? The the Mac Centrus models? Yeah
1: it was very short-lived. <laughs> they did not stick That's around right. very
2: long. That's right. For for a good reason.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but I um just
2: because I remember it was it was pretty awkward to use. But um but I also remember at the end of the 80s I had a, a colleague that I was working with that actually bought was it the like the golly xv or something or it was like oh golly now i've blanked on the model number but but i just remember he paid like twelve thousand dollars for this computer and i was going holy cow you know because i I was young young guy at that point i couldn't even dream of paying that much but but again i realized how much his workflow was improved by having a way more powerful computer than what i had Mm -hmm. and so it, it again set in my mind that you know trying to be on if not the cutting edge at least on the uh the 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 very close to the cutting edge of computers would would do me well. So, um, so I went through the 90s and I got a, um, I had like a Power Mac in the late 90s too, and then got into the 2000s and and went through a couple of G4s and um, and then later on got to had a couple of G5s and then ended up having um, one of those Mac Pros that were the cheese graters. You guys remember those? I'm sure. They're they're still around for some folks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, I, yeah. and actually, and I do have a friend that still uses one, and, indeed. And they were great machines, but I would always kind of be on the front edge. I would always buy the most expensive processor and jam as much RAM as I could and get the biggest hard drives and all that stuff, you know. And then, and then I finally kind of hit, uh, oh, yeah, and I went through a phase of a whole bunch of Mac minis. So there was one point where I had six Mac minis and because I wanted to be kind of more portable. (laughs) So I had like this contraption I'd rigged up to where I racked up six Mac minis in a, uh, in like this plastic plexiglass kind of container that I could cart around with me. And, and, uh, so I had that
0: kind of rigged for about, that's kind of interesting because, you know, for what you do, so those were kind of networked computers then. Correct. Yeah. And,
2: a part of that then is then kind of getting into the the gear and the way that I've set up. And just to finish off kind of my, my Mac history, if you don't mind, I, sure. I um, just ended up uh, – or then at about – I think it was about 2015, I bought my first Mac Pro, the um, – that was the uh, um I mean for lack of a better word, the trash can or, you know, the um the cylindrical guy. You know, and I say I say that in, in all love because I love that machine. So I bought my first one in about 2015 and about a year later I bought another one. And I've I've maxed them out to 128 gigs of RAM and got the 12 core processors and and all of that. And then I've had a succession of MacBook Pros and you know back to I think 1996 was my first laptop apple laptop that I bought or mac laptop and I've probably had about 15 laptops over the, you know in that intervening 22 years or so but so the way that my rig currently is is I have a MacBook Pro it's a 2018 i9 is my kind of main computer and then I use those 2013 Mac Pros as my you know that's where I have all my sounds essentially yeah and so I run I run Cubase and Sibelius on my um, on the MacBook Pro, and then all of my um, all of my sounds are loaded up in those uh, Trash cans.
1: You said something that stood out to me. You said that you were always trying to be on the cutting edge. Yet you stayed with the Mac through the '90s. Was there ever a moment in those dark years that you really thought, "I gotta go"?
2: <laughs> yeah, you know. To be honest, there was in the in those '90s in the mid '90s. It was kind of like. I wasn't sure about the viability of the future of Apple and Max, And so I dabbled a little bit in the dark side and, and, um, had, a, actually I even had like a clone for a while nice um, because I just didn't want, I didn't want to leave, you know, Max, And so I got a clone and I can't remember which maker it was now. Cause I know there were a couple of companies that were making them, but, and that kept me in the, um, you know, in the family. it it kind of bridged the gap, frankly. And I have owned, I mean, I don't, again, I might be banned, but I, I have owned probably eight or nine PCs, you know, over the years to the last time I turned one on would have been probably about 2008. But there was, there was a period of time there where there was a program called Giga Studio. Don't know if you guys have ever heard of it, but it was a sample player and it only was on the PC platform. But before that, I had like 24 Roland samplers, and so I had I had these huge rack bays of of just these one space samples that samplers that that played back. It was before computers could actually again stream the samples audio wise. So I had this whole huge rack and network of of these uh, hardware samplers. And that maxed out, I think, at 64 megabytes or something of sound. So that's why I had to have so many. But the once those you know became so hard to manage, then this PC program called Gigastudio came out, and everybody switched over to that in the early 2000s. But though then finally um, a a company um, came up with a. uh, a version that kind of was similar on a Mac, on Apple on Macs. So that's when I went back to Macs as, as an all my Mac minis. That's when that kind of happened. So I've, I've been loyal all the way through. I've never not had Macs,
0: but I have, um, I was tempted at one point to move on. <laughs> you realize talking Mac history is, is Steven's equivalent of Maynard Ferguson, right?
1: That's right. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Playing jazz now, baby. <laughs> That's right. I'm glad I can converse with both of you guys on some yeah. level. So.
0: <laughs> this episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander. Go to Textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more and get 20% off your first year. Now, if you've got a team, you need Text Expander. Your team can do more with the same resources using Text Expander. There's less repetition, fewer errors, and greater consistency, and they'll feel like they're hopping off a bicycle and onto a Ferrari. Keep your team consistent and accurate and current with Text Expander for Teams, where you can share snippets, share your text and images with the whole staff to keep them on track. Everyone will share the same message and give the same answers to all customer questions. They can work faster and smarter. And you can use Text Expander's powerful shortcuts and abbreviations to streamline and speed up everything. I've got a Text Expander for Teams account. I've been paying for it for a few years now, and I've got my virtual assistant on it with me. This is really useful to us because we use TextExpander for customer support and some of the other back-end stuff we do with the field guides. A few of these bits require a changing URL that changes every month. Well, my virtual assistant goes in and changes that for me at the beginning of each month. So when I go in and start using that snippet, it just automatically has the right URL in it. It doesn't take any of my time. I don't have to think about it. It just works. And that's all because we have the text expander for Teams set up. So keep your whole team commuting efficiently with the consistent language. Share your snippets of messaging, signatures, and descriptions with everyone who works on projects with you. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. So, no matter what platform your team works on, you're covered. And best of all, show listeners get 20% off their first year. I've heard from some of our listeners that are using Text Expander at their work with their team, and they love it. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit TextExpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. Thanks, Text Expander, for all of your support of the Mac Power users. I think something kind of critical for the audience to understand about David's workflow though is that he is orchestrating. So, you know, when you have a movie and you go in the theater and you hear all the strings and the horns and the guitars and all that going, his David's job is to construct that music, to take whatever, you know, the film score uh, film composer's written or if David writes it himself and then build that out for all those musicians that day they record and the way that people do that is they ha- they use computers to simulate all those voices so as you're writing it you can hear what it sounds like and that's what kind of gets back to some of the points you were making before why do you need to stack six mac minis together why do you need a room full of those rolling was it the sound canvas that you were using i think that was the one i had back in the- they were actually s760s they yeah. were yeah but there were devices. And when the technology first started back in the day, because the computers could not have the processing power, the input-output speed, and all the things you need to run those voicings off your computer, you had to send a MIDI signal to something else that could actually make the sound. So so David's been kind of down the road. And now we've reached a point where you can put that stuff on the computer but the you know as we move forward with time those samples get better and bigger and and as a result it takes a massive amount of compute power which is why someone would need a laptop with two mac pros slave to it to do his job correct yeah well said actually
2: that was that was a um, a, a perfect description of of the need for the computers you know and and why it took so long to get to the point of where um doing it kind of at the level that i do it um, was even able to be done on computers.
0: So I, you taught, and I've heard people in your, you know, line of work talk about this, but I honestly don't understand how it works. So you've got a laptop and then you've got two Mac pros feeding into that laptop. Mm-hmm. And you said that's where you hold your sounds. Right. How how does that work?
2: Um, so it's a lot of networking. And so there's, as you alluded to earlier, there's really two parts of the process. There's, MIDI information, which is getting the um, the note on, like when you, so like I have a MIDI keyboard that's hooked up to that laptop, and so when I play notes on the keyboard, it then sends MIDI information through to those remote um, Mac Pros, and where the sounds are stored, and it triggers those sounds over there. So that's that's route one or path one on the route. And then the return path is then getting the audio from those computers back to my laptop, and that's done through I'm, I use a program called Vienna Ensemble Pro. It's essentially an audio streaming uh, app, I guess you would call it. Um, but uh, um, but there's an interface that um, is on both computer on the remote computers and the laptop, and um, and it sends uh, the audio then through Ethernet cables, you know, to the laptop. And so then, then I mix the sounds in the laptop and I have a, um, it's a Yamaha Dante card in a Sonnet chassis, you know, a Sonnet Thunderbolt chassis. And that's what connects out to my audio interfaces
0: and speakers and such. Well, yeah, it's just a lot of computing. I, I remember last year, Apple invited Steven and I to the Mac pro premiere, the new Mac pro. What, is, oh, there, yeah. is there a slang for the new Mac Pro, Steve? I mean, we got the cheese grater, we got yeah. the trash can.
1: I just keep what calling it, it my precious. Don't know. Yeah, it's Stephen Haswell. <laughs>
0: oh, <laughs> okay. I'm
1: so jealous. <laughs> yeah. But but there
0: was a guy there who worked on the most recent um, How to Train Your Dragon. I know you did the the first two. This is the guy who worked on the third one, and he was mm-hmm. talking to me. I wish I got his name, and of course I may have, but I can't find it now. But the um, but he was talking about how he used to have like four computers, like one for strings, one for horns. And he did it all on the single new Mac pro because it's kind of built right. more for expandability. Exactly. Yeah. Have you been tempted to like upgrade to the new system? Yeah, honestly, I really have been. I mean,
2: I've, I've come real close to pulling the trigger a couple of times, but, but I Do think it. part of it is for me, things are working the way that I have my setup right now is working. And when I'm, when you're in the middle of projects, the last thing you want to be doing is, is changing things out And so, uh, so a lot of the reason that I haven't done it is that, um, is because of that, um, just that I, I haven't had really the opportunity to had a slowdown in my schedule to be able to go through that. Cause it's always, it's a couple of week process, you know, every time you swap out a computer where you bring new stuff in to get all the plugins activated and, and all the routing redone and, and you need new templates and all that stuff. So, so it's a, it's a big commitment of time, um, and the other problem I have is I have – I'm I'm very fortunate, but I actually have two studios. I have two houses um, that are about two and a half hours apart. And so I need to have a dupl- I have a duplicate setup of everything um, in each house so that I don't have to cart – the only thing I cart around is my laptop um, back and forth. So I have two other trash cans. I've got four trash cans total. I have two at each house. So if I was going to buy a new um, – one of the new Mac Pros – I'd actually have to buy two new Mac pros
0: (laughs) yeah. if that makes sense. I get it. And and (laughs) honestly, you have too many gigs is what I'm getting from you. You don't have, you need to have downtime.
2: Yeah. It's, I I guess that's a horrible, horrible to actually say that. But, um, but I've been very, very fortunate without question and I'm not complaining at all, but, but it is hard when, you know, it's, it's hard to make changes and, and, you know, most, most people kind of who do what I do, they have technical assistants. They have like, an employee that will do all the, all the, you know, all the um, updates and all the, all the wiring and all that stuff, you know, and, but I've always done it all by myself. And, um, and so that just sort of makes it a little bit harder to find the time and the energy too, frankly. And, uh, but I've always done it all myself because I really, I've always been afraid of not understanding something, you know, if, if I had a computer problem, you know, I wanted to be, and it was like three in the morning, um, I wanted to be able to figure it out myself or know at least where to start. And so that's that's one reason I've always just just done it all myself too. And um and I kinda enjoy it too, I suppose.
1: <laughs> and you know, you can get you can get wheels on that Mac Pro. So you, you could just uh you know, right. roll it up, get it get like a ramp, roll it up into the backseat of the car, buckle it in and take go. it with you. It'd be fine.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know, when I first bought this other house, I I did that with I had like this. Crazy milk carton kind of way. I had my my trash cans in this milk milk crate, you know, and I was sort of doing that. And then I realized I just can't do this, you know, forever. So I that's when I bought the the other machines. But but you're right, steven That would would kind of work. It would uh, um, get the wheels and figure out some kind of lift system or something. Yeah, this but, is uh, the only yeah.
1: way in which the wheels look affordable. It's like, well, I can get seven hundred dollars wheels, or I can get a whole second Mac Pro. I'm here to yeah. help. I'm here to go. I'm here to help. I I feel like
0: though if you're gonna move that Mac Pro at that cost, it needs like its own baby seat. Like somebody needs to make a Mac Pro baby seat. (laughs) Mac Pro cart. Yeah, that's a great idea. And it comes with a sticker that says Mac Pro on board that you stick in your window. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But I, I I do think though I bet you could get it all in a Mac Pro whenever you get around to it. I you'll have to let me know when you do that. Um. Uh, One thing about the trash cans that, you know, the, the knock against them is they made a great machine for people that want to like do audio that I'm sorry, that want to do animation and like graphics Uh work, but for the other kind of pro um, uses of a, of a Mac, it really didn't satisfy them. And like, I'm thinking those trash cans you have, they have great video cards in them, but I'm guessing that is almost useless to you.
2: That's right. I just use screen sharing, you know, so I don't have any monitor hooked up at all. Yeah, that, that's true. But I will say, you know, um, you know, such a, um, so many people have the need for expansion, you know, for cards or whatever, but I don't have any cards on those things at all. I just have um, I have a, uh, because it's all ethernet, you know, I just have an ethernet cable jammed in there. I've got, uh, I've got a, um, you know, an external SSD drive. That I do have have uh, connected to them, but uh, um, well, they're these sleds. They're actually got sixteen terabytes. I have two OWC Thunder Bay Mini, you know, sleds um, with four drives, four, four, four terabyte SSD drives on attached to each of them. That's where those sounds are stored. But uh, but that's it. I just cart, you know. Well, I take the sleds back and forth along with the laptop, actually. But 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 that's all the expansion I need. I don't need you know other you know, other, uh, cards or anything like that. So, so for me, those trash cans are really pretty ideal. You know, they're small too. You know, I kind of like the footprint of them. It's pretty easy. I've got them racked up, uh, on their sides and stuff, but, uh, but they actually, they, they take up, you know, for how much power
0: they have, they take up very little space. Well, Well, David, you've got, um, Uh, OWC accessories. You read thousand page manuals in your bed. You are at home on the Mac power users.
2: (laughs) Oh, I was so worried. You know, I thought, oh gosh, you know, I'm (laughs) I'm not, I'm not worthy to be on your show, but (laughs) (laughs) that's what I see to say. (laughs)
0: Uh, Another thing you told me on the phone you do that I think is kind of interesting. I want to hear more about is you are also an iPad user, but iPads are actually part of your workflow. Uh, Could you explain that? Correct. So so the
2: way I, my my theory of or my approach to technology is to make it a tool that works for you instead of like like you have to struggle with, you know, and so it's all about for me making it um, ergonomic. And keeping that creative flow, keeping me having to think about technology out of the picture, if that makes sense. So I can concentrate on the music. Yes. But then because of that, I, I use a lot of control surfaces and and um, little things. If you, if we were doing a video, you could kind of see I have a little cockpit kind of set up, and at the center of that is well that keyboard that you talked about, the, my Apple keyboard. But then right above that is a Mac uh, iPad Pro. And on that, I'm running uh, an app called Metagrid. I don't know if you, I don't know, you
0: guys have heard that of that at all.
2: Um, I
0: think I've heard of that category. I haven't heard of that specific app though. Explain it. What it does. Yes.
2: Yeah. So what it is is it's essentially a um, keyboard shortcut machine, I guess. You know, so you can program in um, any kind of a key uh, command or. Um, anything you want to, to any program. I I just happen to use it for Cubase and Sibelius, but, um, but uh, so I have buttons. It's like a grid of golly, I've forgotten. I'm just counting like probably about 12 by maybe 20. So you have like, you know, what is that? You know, I, I, my my mind's not working now. but you have a lot of buttons that you can program and you can colorize them. And, um, and what I kind of like about it is it's not just a kind of a basic kind of button machine, but it actually will hook into Cubase, um, and so you can send direct commands instead of having to program inside of Cubase um, uh, your shortcuts and stuff. So, so it's it's quite simple. I actually I use um, Keyboard Maestro quite a bit. I was a uh, QuickKeys user for a long, long—I mean, for a decade, probably until they kind of weren't around anymore and switched on keyboard maestro. Yeah. And, um, and so I use that program as well, or that, that, I guess it's a program, but, um, but the great thing about uh, MetaGrid is that it, it's the most visual thing that I can do because you can colorize the buttons into different categories. And so I have buttons there that I can just touch that will then change the articulation on my sample libraries So, and by that, I mean, you can have long strings and then you can have different articulations that are recorded. They're all recorded by real musicians, but then you can have like staccatos and you can have trills and you can have pizzicato. But those things, if you can get really bogged down in switching between those articulations, if you aren't really thinking about it. So what Metagrid allows me to do is program buttons that make all those switches for me. You know, of course I had to do the background work of programming the, the buttons, but, um, but it, it allows me to switch without even thinking about it between different sounds. And so um, uh, it's much easier. It's the easiest way I've ever found. And in fact, um, Cubase has a section that are, it's called a logical editor. And what it allows you to do is essentially write mini scripts um, to do whatever you want to within Cubase. And so um, I've written some scripts that uh, just extremely speed up my workflow compared to, I think, people who don't take the time to do that, if, if that makes sense. So I, I kind of look at it in, as an investment in time. You know, my time of programming these little shortcuts saves me the time and the mental overhead uh, while I'm actually being creative and working on projects.
0: Does that all make sense? <laughs> Yeah, it does. I, I just downloaded MetaGrid. It's 30 bucks, but it's totally worth it. I can tell already. they have got native keyboard maestro integration. We talk often on the show uh-huh. about the uh, the Stream Deck, which is a little device you can yeah. plug in and press buttons oh. on.
2: Yeah. Hey, sorry to jump in. But, yeah, uh, so I have two Stream Decks. I have one of the original 12-button uh, or 15-button ones, right? Yeah. yeah. On my right-hand side, right above my trackball, and then on my left side, I've got one of the the Stream Deck Pros, you know, the big guys, the Xs or whatever they call them, right? And so, yeah, so that's that's another
0: huge part of my workflow: the Stream Decks. So I'm a huge fan of those guys too. So you can, so you're using both MetaGrid and Stream Deck to do different types of work. Yep,
2: yep. I've got two Stream Decks. One is set up really more specialized for Sibelius. so entering in um, dynamics and articulations, things like that. And then the other one is set up to um, I have one set of samples One my brass library is different than all my other libraries. So I have the smaller stream deck is then to switch between the articulations specifically for that one brass library.
0: Yeah, because you know, even though we've we've moved forward a lot in years, I do my of working with some of this music software not nearly as much as you. Obviously, I still get the impression a lot of it is very menu driven, and there's a lot of digging going on. So, getting it into these control surfaces probably saves you a lot of time, massive amount of time.
2: And it's not just the time, you know, it really is the mental overhead. I've I learned that kind of early on when I I, I used to use. Um, do you remember Pi Engineering and they had the X keys those yeah. They were like little button units, yeah, and and so I I used to have like three of those, and um and I just learned right off the bat that the more things that I can I don't have to remember, try to think what's that shortcut again, you know, where I just have to see a button and push it, you know, it just it saves so much creative mental overhead, and so I've I was a pretty serious adapter you know fairly early on once i realized how much it would speed up my workflow and it's all about speed frankly what i do you know it's you know time is money deadlines are brutal and so the anything you can do to speed up that process and put your energy into writing music instead of trying to remember the technology you know to me that's golden
0: and um, really worth it yeah. And, and what is like on one of these, I know they, they vary, but how many different instruments are in one of these scores on average, like for a frozen, how many instruments were you managing?
2: I'll work backwards in the, the recording session. We had an orchestra of 95 um, for, for the frozen. So we had 95 musicians in the studio, but though then what my job is or part of my job is to, to mock up, with all of my samples before we get to the recording studio. And so what that allows is the directors and producers to hear what they're going to hear essentially with the real musicians, you know, yeah. bef- so, so I, it'll, I, I do the legwork before, you know, I show them what I'm going to be, what they're going to hear before they get there because it's a lot more expensive, you know, if they, if they don't like anything, it's easier for me just to change it before we get to the studio than it is to have 95 musicians sitting around while I'm, while I'm scrambling trying to change things. Yeah, exactly. So, so, um, so that's the whole point of all of my gear and everything is to do these demos and mock-ups as demonstrations, you know, to, to allow, you know, the, the filmmakers to, to hear and give them a heads up before, before it gets really expensive to change things. And, um, Uh, And that's, I've always looked at it that way too, that I've looked at it as that, that my, the sample technology is not to replace musicians. It's a tool to help the process along, but I, I still use the live musicians always. And, um, and there just isn't anything like still as great as the samples are. There's still nothing like real people, you know, the, the, the breath and the life that, that,
0: uh, that real folks bring to, to a recording. Yeah. Well, MetaGrid is now installing my iMac I I'm my iPad Pro. I cannot wait to after (laughs) the show to set it up because this looks like this is going to be great for me. But uh, I want to talk about that process next.
1: This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Matthias, the Macintosh keyboard experts. When you need a new keyboard for your Mac, Matthias has you covered with beautiful options you won't find anywhere else. They've been around since 1989, it's almost as long as me, and specialize in keyboards designed to work correctly for a Mac. That means they'll work just like an Apple keyboard does, no drivers to install, no software to worry about. Their chief designer, Edgar Matias, said that over the years, they've purposely chosen to focus on making products that Apple doesn't offer, so us Mac users have more choices. They offer backlit wireless keyboards beautifully designed to look great with your Mac. Their programmable Ergo Pro is an ergonomic mechanical keyboard with amazing comfort and a spacious gel palm support. Their top seller right now is the wired aluminum keyboard, which is a truly worthy successor to the original Apple wired aluminum keyboard that was discontinued back in 2017. One thing that's really cool, all their wired keyboards have built-in hubs, as proper Mac keyboards should. So you don't have to run your mouse back around to your display. You just plug it right into the keyboard. It's fantastic. Their function keys work just like they do on an Apple keyboard. You'll have no loss of functionality and there's nothing new to learn. Everything just works correctly out of the box. A good keyboard makes your work better. I've checked out several of their models over the years and they really are as good as they say. So head on over to matias.ca/mpu for a 10% discount. That's M-A-T-I-A-S dot C-A slash M-P-U for a 10% discount. Go there now, check them out and get yourself a great keyboard. I really do recommend it. Our thanks to Matthias for their support of the show and Relay FM.
0: So David, I understand, I mean, your job is to get to that point, actually to get to the point where you're in the studio with the 95 musicians and maybe even a little bit of work beyond that. But um I don't really have a good understanding of it, kind of soup to nuts, and I thought it would be fun to talk through the from the moment you get to the job to the moment you finish the job and and what how the Apple technology helps and where it fits in in the process so let's just start at the beginning you know mm-hmm. how does this begin oh.
2: well, the first thing is getting the job <laughs> you you know that's always the the old saw isn't it you know the, the, that that uh, that you know the hard part is getting the job and and uh i'm I'm so fortunate at this point that i've been around I'm old enough that I've been around long enough that that uh i you know people come to me and i I haven't had to worry for a long time about trying to get get work but 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 when you do get the call then uh, and it kind of the process varies depending on who I'm working with uh my rules aren't always the same, but I'll kind of sort of generalize um, you know when I'm kind of an arranger an orchestrator of either the songs or the score and and so the first thing that happens is you go into a a meeting with the director and producer and the composer if I'm not the composer and you just watch down the film and talk about where the music's supposed to go or where it would be good to have music and what kind of music, you know, stylistically would would work there. And so you kind of talk through the concept of the flow of the music for the film. And that's called a spotting session. And that's really the first time that you really have a a chance to really get a feel for what, what the director is looking for and um, uh, stylistically and all that. And then after, after that, you pretty much go off and you work for, maybe a couple of weeks and you start writing themes and, or you start, you know, the first phases of the mock-up process. And, and then you'll have a meeting with the director again in, in after those couple of weeks and, and you play back the five minutes of music you might've done in that period. And then they have a chance to listen to it and, and give their comments and, and you, you know, you develop your dialogue together and, and your collaborative um process at that point and and then that kind of just goes on for a while you you go back then and you start writing some more music and you make the changes that they ask for and and you keep having these meetings and and playback sessions and and eventually you get to the point of where all the music is signed
0: off and at that point then I flip over to orchestration mode all right let me interrupt there then let me just interrupt there so let, let's go back and talk about this initial kind of music creation phase All right. Mm -hmm. So when you go back to your studio, you're looking at your Macs and your keyboards and your iPads and all these things. I mean, what are the apps you use and and how do you start doing this? I I, I would assume you kind of start with like motifs or small melodies, but Mm -hmm. that obviously grows and I don't understand how that happens.
2: Yeah. So, yeah. So the, the first thing I do, and I think a lot of folks do it is I'll just start um, and I'm a horrible keyboard player, by the way. I'm I'm like for the longest time I was the world's worst piano player. And eventually I graduated up to like the second worst in the world. So I'm really a horrible piano player. But I have so enough you're, skills. You're a bass player by trade.
0: Yeah, that was your start. That's right? correct.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so, but I have enough skill that I've developed over the year to know how to really get the music into the sequencer, into the computer. And what I always start out with is a piano part that stage is, I call it a guide piano and other people call it other things, I'm sure. But, but that's where you're watching picture. And so the picture is loaded up inside of Cubase in, in the sequencer. And so it's all synced. You can start anywhere in the sequence and it'll be synced up, you know? And, and, um, and so then I'll just start playing around with ideas and tempos to picture. And then, um, and then right, when and I me, feel like i there again,
0: okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. Again, I'm going to interrupt you a few times. I, no, you know, that's when cool. you say, when you say picture, are you being like the fancy Hollywood guy, meaning the movie or is it that's pictures? correct? Yeah. yeah sorry. Okay. No, yeah. it is. It's the movie. Yeah. And yep. I, I and, I've met Hollywood guys. I had clients that invest in movies and stuff. And they're always, whenever you meet the guy says, Hey, you want to get in the picture business? That's when I get nervous, you know, but <laughs> oh, okay.
2: yeah. rightly yeah. so, by the way, but <laughs> yeah. no, um, it, it is, it's the film. And usually, at the point that you start working on the music, it's still a rough cut. It's not fully edited yet, so that's also part of the equation. You have to remember that there's going to be changes to the film and to the
0: edit throughout the whole process that you're working on it. So okay, uh, and so the so the, the so, so the picture or the movie file goes into the sequencing program. So it actually displays video as well as managing your music. That's correct. It's um, oh, I didn't know that. So yeah. it's
2: yeah yeah so there's in cubase and all all sequencers are kind of the same anymore but but cubase there's a a video track and so you you just drop your QuickTime or or whatever you're getting file into the program and and you can line it up and there's time code there's still a time simply burn window on these so you can you know still you just enter that time code into uh, the start time
0: on your sequencer and and that's how everybody stays synced up. Now, if if the film editor makes any edits, so does that cause massive problems for you later since you're basing oh, everything massive.
2: on it? That's correct. Massive problems. And that's when, I mean, but that's that's the part of the gig. So you, you just accept that. So then at that point, you just have to chase the edits. So they'll provide you hopefully with with where they've, you know, taken out 10 frames or um, whatever. And so then you have to either cut beats out of the sequence or you have to change the tempo of the sequence to to try to arrive at the same important hit points, you know, the 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 important moments that you're trying to catch musically, uh, you know, to the film. Or else if they've added, they they hardly ever add. <laughs> it's always yeah. kind of taken away, but but if they add then you have to add in x number of beats to, you know, to account for those uh, you know, that that material, but uh and then so, so, can,
0: so in this first phase, just if I can summarize, yeah. you you've sure. got the picture playing and then you've got a piano track. you've kind of set the music as you want it to that and that's what mm-hmm. you're working with the director on as you do this initial phase.
2: Actually not quite. There's then after you after I've done my piano part to where I feel good about it, then then I'll go through and mock it up with my orchestra samples. Or synthesizers or whatever I want to use, and then that's what I would play for the director. And is that the full ninety-five piece
0: orchestra, or is that is that something smaller?
2: That's my sim, my synthesized and sample mock-up of what will be the ninety-five musicians. Okay, and all that's right. so that's all done with my computers then before any live people have have come on board.
1: Okay, of so course. you're you're sort of making the blueprints in your studio, putting all the pieces together. And once yeah. that's cohesive and everyone gives you the thumbs up, that's when it moves to real life.
0: Exactly. That's that's exactly right. Yeah, you know, it's it's fascinating to me. No matter what you're making, whether it's movies or books or whatever, the whole idea is to make all the big moves, the you know, navigational big decisions with the least amount of resources. Because mm-hmm. if you you know you if you start putting the meat on the bones and then you want to change something, it costs so much more money. But it's interesting mm-hmm. to me, everybody we talk to, you know, whether they're scientists or musicians, they all do it the same way in that, in that, at uh, that level. Fascinating. I actually hadn't thought about
2: that, but I'm, I'm, well, you guys have seen it and I'm sure that's true. And, you know, and just sort of going back in time a little bit, you know, that's, I think one of the huge changes in life that computers have, have had on at least the art world, you know, is that, uh, um, you know. 50 years ago, you couldn't do this, you know, the first time the director would hear the music would be in the studio with the 95 musicians, you know, and if they didn't like the themes or whatever, you know, you had a lot of trouble, you know, yeah. and so the com- computers then have really, um, one of the huge benefits I believe has been, it, it does allow to do this, um, you know, the, the, the beginning phases in a way that makes everybody happier
0: with, with, uh, and more comfortable, I suppose, moving forward. Yeah, I remember when I was in high school, I did a little bit of studio work as a saxophonist. And my very first studio gig, Somebody, I walked in, somebody handed me the music. And it was literally on my music stand. And then they said, okay, here we go. This room costs $3,000 every half hour. If you screw up, you will never be asked back. And then they pressed, the, the, there wasn't even a rehearsal. They pressed the red button and I right. started playing. I, I mean, I'm like, man, you think legal law is stressful? Jeez crazy (laughs) yeah really
2: yeah Yeah, you know and that's still the way it is for the musicians you know um uh, as an aside that you know the the orchestra players the musicians when they show up they they're sight reading they they haven't seen any of the music before they get to the studio so you know so i i'm in complete awe of all of the musicians that i work with and that play my music because because they're they are so good. They just, they just sit there and they play it. And I write some really hard stuff, you know, and, and um, but uh, it's that whole thing of uh, they have the skill set that, uh, that is, is tremendous.
0: Yeah. All right. So I interrupted you earlier. So you, but you're, you're working through this preliminary stage with, you know, kind of getting the right feel for the director. Hopefully there's not a lot of edits, but then you said, then you moved to orchestration and I cut you off. So let's talk about that next. Oh yeah. No worries. Yeah. So at that point, once
2: everything's signed off, and everybody's good to move forward to actually then spending the money to go into the studio. Uh, Then I transfer my work that I've done in Cubase, which is the sequencing program. Um, So Cubase is great for coming up with creative ideas on the fly and being able to manipulate them and stuff, but it's not real good at printing up scores and parts for the musicians to play. So then the next phase for me is then taking my Cubase file and converting it to, uh, to notation in Sibelius, which is the notation program I use now. And um, and that involves, um, I kind of do a cleanup pass in Cubase to get like the, there's things over the decades that I've learned that are easier to clean up in Cubase, like note endings, you know, how long a note is held for, accidentals, it's easier to change the sharps and flats in Cubase for some reason than it is when you send it to the notation program. But it adjusts it. So there's about 20 things like that. So I'll clean it up in Cubase. I create an XML file, which is then a visual of the rudimentary notation output that Cubase will do. But um, so I send it from Cubase and open that up in Sibelius. And so what that does is it's all of the information is still uh, manipulatable in Sibelius. So then I can still assign, um, I can copy and paste, you know, the material into, so like if I wanted to copy, have have a flute double what the violins are doing, I can. I would do that in Sibelius, you know, so I can, you know, still move all the material around. And in Sibelius is where then I'll do things I call enter the dynamics, like the, the mezzo forte or the forte or the piano indications and, um, and the articulations like the staccatos and things like that. And the phrase markings, slurs, things like that, I do all that in Sibelius. And so that's where I really create the score. But I have the advantage, um, a lot of times people, there'll be a a separate person doing that either composing or arranging stage in the sequencer. And then a separate person will do the notation work. But one of the things I'm very fortunate to be able to do is I do both sides of it. So. When I'm when I'm writing in Cubase, I kind of know what I need to do to make it easier in Sibelius. So I kind of have again streamlined the whole process as much as I can. And um and again in Sibelius, I know what I what I what I know already when I get to Sibelius, I know what I did in finale. I mean in finale, in cubase. So I know, you know, I was writing with a certain purpose in Cubase, that then I know what I need to do in Sibelius, if that all makes sense. But yeah. It's just I'm I'm very fortunate and happy that I can kind of do both sides of that equation. Um, cause it, again, you know, it, it, it kind of has more creative purpose. I think that way too, instead of trying to second guess, um, I, I know specifically what was going on. So
0: well, I, I totally get it. I mean, as a, as a lawyer yeah. in the same way, I always yeah. kind of manage the whole widget. And as a result, the final product is just, in my opinion, better. Um, yeah. how do you keep track though? Like if you're working in, like, you know, there's something you want to do in Sibelius later, how do you make sure you remember to do it? Because in your case, you're going to have foul notes or all sorts of problems if you don't get those that fixed when you move it over. That's right. And I just always, um, in
2: Sibelius, one of the beautiful things of, of using a notation program is you have playback. So even though it's not very good quality, you can actually listen to the the notation file that you've done, and so if you have a, any really bad clunkers, you're going to hear them you know um, uh, and that's one advantage again of using a computer as opposed to doing everything by hand, like I did for so long when I was younger um, because you know when you're looking at a hand score, you just have to be able with your eyes to really see where the mistakes might be or where you made a made a clam but when you're um, but when you can play back in a in the notation file with audio feedback. You you can hear those problems, and so uh, so that's
0: that's one of the things. Um, now, can I, let me interrupt you one more one more time. That so you you said the audio is not as good. So does that means Sibelius doesn't take advantage of all your um, your hardware, so you don't get the the really great playback from Sibelius. All right, so your fans are quieter then, but it doesn't sound as good. Yeah, I th-
2: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and that's one of the. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> um, that's one of the. Um, One of the really dilemmas, though, frankly, about what I about this field of work is that there are programs like Cubase sequencers that do an amazing job of doing demonstrations, you know, of what live musicians will do, but they can't—they don't notate very well, right? The notation isn't—they're not designed to make the printed music look very good, and then you get the notation programs like Finale and Sibelius that look great, but they don't—they don't have all the playback capabilities to make it sound good, so. There's been this, my whole life, there's been this search for the Holy Grail program that will do both. And I'm not the only person, you know, if somebody could come up with a program that is a great sequencer, but also has great notation, that would be, I would be in heaven. You know, I could, I could die and be a happy man, you know, at that point. And, and there in fact is a program that's on, I think the path towards that. And it's called Dorico and it's a Steinberg software software. That is, uh, And Steinberg is the company that makes Cubase. So Dorico, they're trying to um, really build it to where it will will do both of those worlds. And it's still a fairly young program. And it's getting better and better every revision, as you would expect. Um, I still don't feel quite comfortable enough to just switch over to using it. But I really am hopeful within... I don't know how many years, you know, but within my lifetime, they they'll crack the nut. And because that honestly is the hardest part of my job. It's the going back and forth between Cubase to Sibelius. And, um, and it, it just, um, if you could do everything in one under, under one hood, it would be a lot, lot easier.
0: Now, if you make a change in Sibelius, do you have to like round trip it back to Cubase or is your Cubase file then become kind of like the, the moment in time that you exported it, but then it never, then it kind of loses relevance at that point.
2: Yeah, that's correct. Yep. Yeah. Once I moved to Sibelius, I, I never go back to finale. Golly, I keep saying finale. I never go back to Cubase
0: uh, with uh, very, very few rare exceptions. Which is a shame because then you don't get to actually hear the finale version with all your fancy computers. And yeah. Sounds.
2: Well, they exist, you know, and, and I always, I, I print, um, obviously, uh, a, a, an audio file of my mock-ups that I have to play for the director. And so, so those files still do exist. And I think, I can't remember if Frozen or Frozen 2 on the CD soundtracks might have some of my demos. I can't remember if, if they have some of my synth demos, um, that are there that people can hear. And I might be wrong. I can't remember, you know, if they do or not, but, uh, um, but it is sort of true. You put a ton of work, you know, my wife gives me a hard time all the time too. You know, she, you work so hard on these demos, you know, and then they never get heard (laughs) and she's kind of right, but, but it's just part of the job. You know, that's the way in 2020, you know, that's how you have to do things. It's nobody really can, can go back and just do it the old, old fashioned old school way, which I still love by the way, writing by hand. I love the concept, but cause it feels really organic, but it just is not a viable way in a, in the commercial uh, film world now to really work. So, and so you accept that and that's how, how, you know, that's what you do. And, and um, but uh, the one thing I'll say too, that what Cubase does is it spits out the way that it does live for the recording session is it, they take the tempo map from my Cubase file and that becomes the click track that the musicians record to. So essentially, the metronome that the musicians record to, and the reason for that is then that stays in sync. Since I wrote it in sync to the picture, it um, it stays in sync for for the recording session. So, so that part of Cubase does live on um, uh, at least till the recording recording session.
0: And, and I would argue that it's these these uh, demos that you make is the reason that the recording sessions come out so amazing. I mean, it's it's just it's part of the process to get you there. Yeah.
2: I actually agree with you David. I think that that's true that um and one thing that I I'm really passionate I mean so many people are but I, I really am passionate about trying to make things as really great as they can be and um I don't I don't ever take shortcuts. I don't settle. I I really believe that the music deserves the attention, you know, the most attention that you can give it to make it sound as great as possible. And I put that attention to detail in my demos. Um and, uh, you know, at some point I should, should, you know, send you something or whatever. And you can kind of hear some, you know, what I do on some of these things. Because they do sound pretty darn realistic, you know. And, um, and I try to, to, to send the heart, put the, you know, put the emotion, the heart into my demos that I do believe translates over when we get to the real, real musicians who only make it way better. You know, they just take it a whole another step
0: um, higher. Well, you know, I was going to ask you if you could send us some pictures of your setup, you know, with all the iPads sure. and keyboards. So we'll put in the show notes. We also have a newsletter that goes out. I don't know if, if you have a small bit of music you can use without getting in trouble with anybody um, right. that you could share. I think we probably have the, we have the ability to share images. I think music files, they can only get so big. Steven, what can we do in terms of show notes in terms of giving a link to a music file?
1: Oh, uh, Yeah, we can upload something somewhere and link to it. Uh.
0: Yeah, so if you can give us just a small sample of something, we'll put that in the show notes, too, so folks can check that out. Yeah, okay, cool. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Eero. Go to Eero.com slash MPU and get your Eero delivered with free next-day shipping and get the Wi-Fi every home deserves. These days, your house isn't just your home. It's an office. It's a school. It's a movie theater. It's a restaurant. All of these activities and more put a strain on your Wi-Fi. It's not good enough to only have Wi-Fi working in a room or two. You need solid Wi-Fi in your whole house so everyone isn't working on top of each other. In other words, you need Eero. Eero is an Amazon company that covers your whole home with fast, reliable Wi-Fi inside and out. Rooms with bad-to-no Wi-Fi, dropouts on your patio, you know the problems. We all have them but Eero solves them. Eero makes every square foot of your house usable by eliminating poor coverage and dead spots. You'll have a consistently strong signal wherever you need it. You can be on a work call, the kids can be on remote learning, and someone can be streaming videos, and Eero can handle it. Eero is fast and easy to set up. You just plug it into your modem and you're good to go. You manage Eero from a super simple app. You can pause for dinner and get alerts if any device attempts to join your network. We're asking a lot of our Wi-Fi. Eero can help yours do more. Go to Eero.com MPU and enter code MPU at checkout to get free next day shipping with your order. That's Eero, eer ocom MPU and code MPU at checkout to get your Eero delivered with free next day shipping. Our thanks to Eero for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. All right. So, you mentioned earlier that, you know, after you do all this work, you print the music out, you go in a big room full of musicians that get the red light pointed at them and then they have to record it. <laughs> How does that feel?
2: Well, I'll tell you, that is my favorite part of the entire process because I, all of my work up to that point, almost all of it has just been by myself um, in my little studio room, you know, my personal studio. And so I'm working really on my own and then to get to the studio and actually see some other people. is always kind of nice, (laughs) but, but, but mainly it's to hear again, what these amazing musicians bring to the, the, you know, the, the, um, the notes on the page. They're really this abstract kind of thing, but they bring, they bring it to life. And, um, and it's just the, the
0: absolute best part of the whole process. And uh, I have to admit it was that watching that series, I mean, I, I figured out you were a Mac guy, but then um, they had a scene in the studio and they had the movie playing in the background. all these musicians just, you know, just killing the score. And there's a shot of you there, and there's just so much delight on your face. I'm like, I want <laughs> to talk to this person and hear oh. his story. I mean, it, it, I can tell that that is a big deal. And, and you're right, it is a very solitary thing that you do up until that mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd also like to interject,
2: there's one more step before we get to the studio. So um, once I've written my um, full score in Sibelius, I then send that um, file those files to a, a music copyist and um, and so they take my file where I'm only worrying about the full score that the conductor would see and then that that you know anybody who wants to see what the whole big picture is doing but though then the what the music copyists do is they prepare all the individual parts so they'll extract the flute part only out of, off of my score and make make a part just for the flute player you know, and, um and likewise with the violins or the trumpets. So, so there's uh, and then they print all of the music up, the actual physical sheet music, they print up and then they um put it out on the stands for the musicians. So that's actually, a, to me, a, a very important part of the whole step that, that the music prep people are, um, I'm huge fans of those folks as well too, because they take care of all those kind of the smaller details that are extremely important um, to, to actually get us on stage and get the red light on.
0: I just assumed that Sibelius would have done that as well. I'm surprised that it has to go through another process.
2: They do it in if Sibelius does it. It's just that it's another step to get like page turns. Like yeah. if you have a, you know, like a, a 200 bar queue, you know, that that there's going to be a couple of page turns in there. And for musicians, as, as you know, you know, to make a page turn, if it's not laid out right, um, it you got to stop playing to be able to make the page turn if, if there aren't rests at the end of that page, you know, yeah. to allow you time to make the turn. So that's where um, it takes, uh, Sibelius and Dorco and Finale will all do that um, automatically to some extent but you still need people that real people that will go through and look at it and make sure that it makes sense for the musicians I, when they actually you're not, get
0: there that that that's screwing over the trumpet player you know?
2: that's right <laughs> yeah yeah and believe me the trumpet players are really important you know <laughs> yeah no they're, they're all important
0: like a trumpets in b-flat where you're writing everything in concert c does Sibelius also do all the the transposition for you that's correct. Yeah. yeah, and
2: so you know, some people will still write in um, a, tra- a transpose score is what it's called, where all of those transpositions for the French horns and the trumpets and clarinets and all that are um, are already taken to, into account. But the way that the uh hollywood film music world has worked for as long as i've been around which is at least 30 something years 40 years um every everything is written in a concert score so it's written at concert pitch and then the the music prep people then prepare the parts that are
0: transposed yeah so you're not going to make the trumpet player transpose and sight read right you're going
2: to give it to them <laughs> you <know>, in b flat <laughs> you know and you're right and and that's exactly what one would think right but the fact is, and, and this blows my mind, because, and I don't understand why we still do it this way, but so often the trumpet players will play C trumpets instead of B-flat trumpets. Okay. So, but they, but the, so the music prep people prepare the parts in B-flat So the trumpet players actually are transposing um, on the stand while they're sight reading. And so, and I never quite understood that. And I need to find out more of why don't we just print C trumpet parts, you know, (laughs) but
0: anyway, I digress. And for our listeners who are not musicians, that's like mental jujitsu to like, it's like, (laughs) it's like to read a book out loud and translate it into French at the same time. I don't, I don't know what the analogy is, but it's hard. Um, It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, is that the end for you uh, in the uh, studio once they do the recording? Or are there any more involvement? No. Nope, then there is more involvement. So, uh,
2: we get through the recording sessions, and then you get to the stage uh, that's called mixing. And what that is is it's taking all of the um, recordings that you've done, and you, so they're really raw recordings. So, if you just played back without any uh, adjustments you know, the violins might be too soft or the percussion might be too loud. So then you go through the step called mixing where you, um, it used to be, you would sit in a studio altogether, a different studio and the engineer would kind of get the balances right. And then, uh, then I would, and the composers or whoever else is involved would give notes to the mixer, the engineer, and then they would make adjustments until you finally arrive at what you feel is the perfect mix and, um, that used to be done always, uh, like I was saying in live, uh, in person. Um, but though anymore, it's becoming more and more in, in this world where audio files just get sent around and, and you just listen in your own space and make notes that go back to the engineer and then they, they make notes. So, uh, so when you, you, and then at the point that you have the final music mix, then there's one more stage of involvement and that's called the dub, which is the, the final dub is where the, uh where the sound effects are mixed in. There's a whole other engineer that does the mixing of the sound effects in the dialogue and the music. And it's not uncommon for the composer or arranger to be involved in those sessions as well, where you'll go in and you'll just listen to the, the final dub and, and, again, give usually a minimal number of notes. And, and so that, that then becomes the final
0: step that I am typically involved in. So in this process, have you ever had like one passage of music that you just love the way it came out, and then you get to the end, and the <laughs> sound effects and the voice have have <laughs> lowered the volume so much that you you can't hear, or even worse, they've they've just cut the scene. Have you ever had your heart broken? I try not to be that um, precious about any.
2: Anything because you know it, I, I figure I'm kind of in a in a way in a service industry you know I'm there to serve the film I'm there to serve serve the vision of the director you know so um, but uh, so I try not to get to the point of where I'm so depressed and heartbroken but but it happens very frequently I remember one film I worked on where all the music that was written for specific scenes ended up getting moved around to be. Um, on scenes that wasn't even written for, you know, so none of the music actually lived for what the scenes that it was written for the, they just decided to move it all over the the film. And so it, I, I remember seeing it and I was going, this makes no sense, you know, yeah, it doesn't fit. kind of bummed, yeah. bummed about yeah. that. Yeah. And as far as the sound effects things, yeah, especially like action films, you always, uh, you know, you spend, you know, weeks sometimes working on these like eight, eight minute, chase scenes or whatever you know or or car chases or gun battles or whatever it's going to be you know and and you work and you work and you work and you go back and forth and make it the changes and everything um and uh and you record it and then you get to the you you watch the picture and it's all gunshots or car screeches you know and and so the music you you can't even hear you know and, and all of all that time you know and effort that you put into it it's you know it's not wasted of course, but. Uh, but you kind of you you sometimes can have that disappointment. But uh, but again, you know, it's it's a team effort. We're all there uh, uh, working together to try to make the film the best as it possibly can be. And and everybody's vision's not always going to be the same, and and that's just part of the gig. Yeah.
0: Now, now Stephen, what you said you saw Frozen seven hundred times. Yeah. Is that your number? Many, okay. many times. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, now, David, in the process of doing this whole process for Frozen, how many times do you think you saw it? Oh gosh, so now Frozen's a little different for me because I don't tend to see
2: the whole film in a run through, you know, straight run through. I'll be at the screenings and stuff, but I yeah. don't, I don't, I I'm focusing more on just the songs, you know. Yeah. So I see those songs like thousands of times. I guess you could almost yeah, probably sure. figure
0: I'm sure. Do you do you still enjoy them after they come out? I mean, do you watch the movies and enjoy them after having worked on them for so long?
2: Well, I'll have to say there are some films. That yeah, I do. I don't ever get tired of some of the ones that I've worked on, and and Frozen and Frozen Two too were actually were films like that where I don't know. I just felt so. Um, I, I thought that they turned out pretty well, and and I suppose there's a uh, it's not a good thing, but I suppose there's a level of pride there, you know, that you feel like yeah. you did a decent job, and and um, and so I I, I some films like that, I really don't get tired of. And in fact, you know, and frozen for me has been kind of almost a side cottage industry in a way too, because I've worked on theme park versions of those songs. You know, I did the, uh, the Broadway version of frozen. So I I lived with those songs all again in a whole different um, instrumentation and world, you know, and, and so frozen has really been kind of a, a pretty big part of my life for the last, what is it? Eight years or nine years now that I've been started working on the first one, I guess. and, And so, um, so yeah, so some, some projects I just feel, you know, and and a lot of it, it sounds corny or something, but I also, I really look at my work. I really try to make the world a better place. I don't know if that, I know it sounds.
0: There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with
2: that. Yeah. But I think I try to look at it as trying to bring some beauty to the world and some happiness. And, um, uh, and I feel that frozen, and, and especially Disney projects in general, you know, all, all around, you know, that I've worked on. I feel that that's a big, big part of what I enjoy most of, of having the opportunity to work on them.
0: Uh, I never forget. I was sitting in, cause you know, I'm, I'm an older guy. I I'm not big into frozen, but I was at Disneyland once and a bunch of kids just started s- spontaneously singing a frozen song and they <laughs> were having so much wow. fun. And I'm like, no. You, you are making the world a better place. I mean, people are no. bringing joy. Um, now, now I want to get back a little bit nerdy here. Um, earlier mm-hmm. you mentioned uh, keyboard maestro and I let that slide by, but I did not. Forget <laughs> it. So what are you doing with keyboard maestro in this whole process?
2: Tons and tons and tons of things. And so I don't even know how many, um, how many macros I've got with keyboard maestro at this point, but it's, it's, probably a thousand, I'd guess, you know, and they trigger for the most part, they're one-offs, you know, that, um, w- that they might be a stream deck button, you know, will trigger w- one of the macros. But, um, but again, I'm always looking to streamline as much as I can and keyboard maestro really does a great job of that. Um,
0: can okay, give me an example? Like what's the most recent one you made? What, what problem did it solve?
2: Okay. I know one thing is that, um, I was working on. It was a film. Yeah, it was. It was a film. I can't probably say what it was that I, it hasn't come out yet. But I was working on it like about a month ago, and I had to go back and forth between looking at a PDF of the of the of the piano vocal, like this the sketch part of the song. Yeah. And a, um, and my Sibelius file. And I was still working in Cubase at that point too on the piece. So I had to look at these three things, but I didn't want to just do a, um, you know, the command, um, tilde, you know, flipping or command tab going through apps, yeah. you know, uh, the different programs. And so, so I wrote a keyboard maestro to where I could just do a shortcut directly to, to preview, um, and then back to, you know, and, uh, back to Cubase or back to, so it was just, it just enabled me to really control my workflow without having to think about it, you know, without yeah. having to, you know, because I, I don't know about you, but when I would do the command tab thing, I overshoot, you know, and so then I have to figure out like what, you know, where do I really want to end up? And so, uh, so that was the, that, w- that actually was the exact last, last one I wrote, but, um, but it's those sort of things that are just so helpful. And, uh, and again, I always am looking to combine as many things as I can Um, in Sibelius to enter um, dynamics, you select the note and then you do command E and then you hold down command while you're typing the dynamic, like mezzo forte MF. And then you um, have to hit escape twice to get back out to, you know, to be able to work on stuff. So that's a lot of key, key presses right you know yeah but so then i've i program those in in keyboard maestro to do the whole you know macro you know and then i trigger that all with stream deck you know with one button there and um and it's stuff like that that saves you know days and days you know when over
0: a year you know and and so yeah it's a lot of those kind of things do you you find yourself using pauses a lot with those triggers with the (laughs) multiple keystrokes
2: I, I, I always try to do it without, (laughs) you know, I always say, I bet you this is going to work without the pause, you know, and, and sometimes that happens, but there, you know, it seems like inevitably, I don't know, I I don't know, maybe half of the, my macros, I have to insert a pause and the other half can go through.
1: It's a, it's a great, great tool when you're building something. It's like, oh, it's, it's just falling apart. The pause will often save you
0: yep exactly the right pause yep. will set you free i i just wrote one yesterday for drafts and it was the same thing i'm like why is this not working and i'm like oh yeah 0.1 second pause i i i uh, in fact now that i mention it i just need to make a keyboard maestro script to insert a point one second pause in keyboard <laughs> that's maestro. a great idea that's yeah. a great idea because <laughs> i think no. i use that I use that more times than Steven's watched Frozen. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> oh man. So and yeah. then so you've got I, I really like though the way you've you've handled that problem because you're right. So much of working on computers gets in the way of creativity. And honestly, that is to me the value argument for the Mac. I mean, I I've worked on PCs yeah. and it always yeah. felt like working on PCs meant that you had to be able to interrupt your creative thought to do mm-hmm. like defrag a drive or something stupid. And whereas on the yep. Mac, not only does the, is the hardware reliable, they, a lot of the tools on the Mac are built around the creative process. So you can just be thinking about writing or creating music or, Doing yeah. whatever it is that you create, you know, your form of art, and completely agree. Yeah, and I just like the way you've also like gone that extra level of saying, yeah, I want to create art. So when the music software makes me, you know, press five keystrokes and then escape twice, mm-hmm. I'm going to take mm-hmm. that out of the process too. Mm-hmm. Yep,
2: and that's it. It's it's all about. Um, again, for me, it's it's the mental overhead. You know, if I can can um, put that towards the creative side. You know that's um, that's where where computers really benefit. You know, is that you can uh, you can really focus. And you're so right about about Apple and Mac products. Is that it's, um, it? it I, I I buy a P, like I bought a Surface. I don't know, like three years ago or something, because there was one program that again was only PC um, at that point. And I wanted to really just check it out, you know. And so you had to buy it. But though, then I get there and I'm just like, this—it's just not natural. And you have to—you can't find anything. And the Apple process is just so Mac process is so um, streamlined to the way that I think and the way that I work. It, it's gold, you know. They're—they're they're golden, golden machines.
0: Now I'm going to create a hypothetical Mac for you. All right, and this doesn't <laughs> okay. exist, but let's say that. A few years in the future, once Apple makes this transition to Apple Silicon, they make an iMac, a 27- or a 30-inch iMac that can tilt down like a drafting table, and you can write Mm -hmm. your music with an Apple Pencil on the screen. Would that be useful Mm -hmm. to you? You know, and that's been another one of my holy grails forever.
2: You know, I actually went through um, the process at one point of getting a touchscreen, and there was some company, and I can't remember now what the company is because it's been a number of years, but they built a driver for Macs for this Dell touchscreen, you know. And I then went in and I tried to, in Sibelius, you know, um, tried to do the notation using the the pencil in. And because I always thought, man, if I could go back to writing by hand, it always felt so natural to me and so organic, but then have the benefit of the computer. But then when I got there and I did it, I realized But I missed so many other things that, you know, shortcuts and things that the actual working in it as a computer instead of a hand uh, pencil thing was better. So I actually kind of got off that jag for a while, you know, but if, you know, if anybody could do it, it would be you, David, who could, could figure out the way to make it like perfect for me. That would be great. I would love that.
0: I, I almost think it probably wouldn't work for you because of you're, you're such a geek and you figured out a way to automate so much stuff. I'm not sure it would work. But the one thing that stands out for me, and I forget the name of the manufacturer. It's gonna What's the name of the company that makes the tablets you write on, you can connect to your Mac? Uh, wait, Wacom. Wacom. They yeah. make one that has a screen in it where you could actually put Sibelius on that screen and write on it. But I, I right. suspect it was probably just getting away for you terms of speed yeah yeah it's it's hard to know because um i don't
2: know how much of it is that i i'd need to adjust my mindset you know to to going back to to working that way but but i i bet there would be some kind of perfect hybrid world that would take advantage of of both processes but you know that also takes a lot of trial and error too and uh um to to figure that kind of stuff out and uh but uh, there are apps that are handwriting apps Uh, music, iPad handwriting apps. Yeah. On the iPad. And, um, and I, and every year, about once a year, I'll go back through and I'll, I'll give them another shot, but, but they still, again, um, they're really, they're stunning works of software coding, I think, you know, but, but they're still not faster, you know, and to me, if it's not faster and kind of more, um, in my, my approach, uh, user friendly, um,
0: you know, why do it yet? You know, yeah, and i can't imagine there being any faster way to put music into a computer than using like a a keyboard and by i Mm-mm. mean like a musical keyboard not a, a yes a yeah yeah
2: keyboard. well as an aside though you know it's fantastic it's it's fascinating to me cuz actually sibelius and finale have computer keyboard entry systems so without using a music keyboard you know, you you just type in like you know A is is, is the note A, you know, and and I I look at some people that are that's how they always enter everything, and it, it's like I'm blown away at how fast they could do it because, you know, it's actually pretty quick if you uh, if you have studied that and practiced it. So, uh, but I I don't think that way. You know, my mind still thinks on a computer on a uh, MIDI keyboard.
1: This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Hover, one of Relay FM's longest running sponsors. When you have a big idea, where do you go? Whether it's a project, a business, whatever it may be, Hover is your first big leap because your business or project starts with a domain name. Hover has over 300 domain name extensions to choose from, so no matter what you want to build, there's a domain name there waiting for you. They have excellent technical support to answer any questions you may have, and they're dedicated to getting you online, not upselling you. I love if I'm helping somebody out with a website or a domain, getting their stuff into Hover and they're shocked at how clean and easy it is to use. You don't feel like you're getting tricked while you're uh, just dealing with regular domain stuff. Buy your domain and start using it today. Go to hover.com MPU and get a 10% discount on all new purchases. That URL, one more time, hover.com slash M-P-U. Make a name for yourself with Hover. Our thanks to Hover for their support of the show. So we've spent a lot of time talking about your setup, and it is incredibly impressive. But oftentimes, there's apps and services that are kind of the glue between things. Uh, What are some of those favorite smaller tools that you're using that maybe we haven't gotten to yet? You know,
2: Stephen, there's, there's a couple that we haven't talked about that I know I have used, and they tend to be more specific situations that I've used them and found them helpful. One I can think of is, um, I'm pretty sure it's PDF Reader. Um, is, that, is that it? Uh, golly, oh, this is horrible. I should have known the name. <laughs> but what it allows you to do on the iPad is to use the Apple Pencil and annotate um, onto PDFs. Yeah, there's and several. Maybe of those. It's Good Good Reader. I think it's Good, good Reader. reader oh, right
0: Good Reader. That's a classic.
2: Yes. Yep. 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 Sorry, I I botched the name, but uh, it's Good Reader, and um, and I got first was first introduced to that when I was in. Um, in rehearsals in, uh, for one of the Broadway shows for frozen, actually it was one of the companies in frozen and always in my life, I've had these giant printed out scores, you know, that they're 11 by 17 inch pages paper that you flip through, you know, so the whole score is there in paper form. But then I had, um, this, uh, this guy who said, well, you know, you should just put all, all your scores as a PDF on an iPad and, and it's so much easier, and I was thinking, no, nah, no, nah, nah, you know, it won't be, but then I finally tried it, and it was like, holy cow, what, you know, what have I been missing all this time, and and so so cool, because in a rehearsal then, um, and especially when it's dark in a theater, you know, it's hard to, like, see the score, so, but on an iPad, of course, you can adjust the light, however you want it to be, and and so then I could, um, you can make your notes and then it's easy to find them later and you can erase them and then make the next set of notes. And so especially in theater music, I think that uh, that Goodreader was like, it was like a, um, uh, you know, just a, a big shining beacon there that was, uh, so many people
0: had discovered that it took me a while to get get on board with. <laughs> I, I, I want to blow your mind, David. There's another app called Fourscore. Fourscore f-o-r-s-c-o-r-e yeah it's made it's yep. made for musicians it does the same thing but like you can uh, it's made to display music and you can even attach a bluetooth pedal to it so it can turn pages for you right turn
2: pages right i've heard of it and i've actually never never done it so that'll that's on my list
0: now to uh, right. to check out fourscore cool cool yeah. Goodreader is still there. I mean, that app was like the initial one that everybody used and mm-hmm. they did a great job of making it, it. It like opens anything. I think of, I don't know that there's any type of file you can put on an iPad that Goodreader can't seem to open. And uh, hmm. I'm glad it continues to get developed. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Yeah.
2: And I can think of another app that I use. It, it's a little lower on my rotation now, but for about Five years it was huge and it's a app called touch osc and um so what it was was it was kind of like metagrid before metagrid but it deals with um uh, osc messages which i'm not quite geeky enough to really fully understand how those work but um you have a receiver on the mac and then so it sends out these osc messages that essentially then can trigger uh, keyboard maestro or it also will send in MIDI information, so you can build a, f- it, and so you could build your own um, interface on the iPad. That so you could have faders uh, that would send MIDI MIDI information, or you could have then you could make little buttons that would be then send out um, triggers to do anything, or it would send MIDI notes. So sometimes for key switching between articulations, like we were talking about earlier, before I really kind of spent the time to totally dial it in, um, I would uh would would send MIDI notes to to change articulations. And uh so TouchOSC was uh has been a huge favor of mine for a long time and and it's kind of been supplanted by Metagrid and the Stream Decks. And actually I don't remember if I brought it. I have a loop deck CT, one of those controllers too that I'm using now. What is that, that? Um uh it's um I should send you a link. It's um it's a little it's it's awesome actually is what it is. It's a little piece of awesome. And so it has um, a series of buttons that are hardware buttons. It has, let's see, a grid of, what is it? uh, 12 software buttons that you can program, you know, that have the little, um, what are they? OLED screens, you know, that have the, you know, tell you what it is or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, There are six knobs that you can turn. So like I'm using those to adjust velocity or mod wheel uh, information in my sequencing s- steps, um, and then there's a big giant jog shuttle wheel right in the middle, and I've had it for maybe two months now, and it's I think pretty darn incredible. It's kind of like a combination of the best of things I've always wanted to have in one little itty bitty unit. So anyway, so all of these things have combined to minimize my um, touch OSC. Um, usage. But um, I still will pull out sometimes if I have specific things I need to do that TouchOSC comes uh, in good use for. It connects to um, a, pro- a program on the Mac called Osculator, OSC Lator. And um, at least I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, that's how I pronounce it. <laughs> sure. And um, so those two work together. Then the Osculator is the uh, is the interpreter of the messages from TouchOSC. But those are. Um, Those are ones that I really use a lot. Um, I was going to say too. I'm just looking at my trackball now, just real quick. It's not an app, but it's I. It's sort of indispensable in the way I work. I've got one of the four button Kensington trackballs that are like there's a slim blade, yeah, one of those guys, and I use the top two buttons as page forward and. Uh, Well, page back is my upper left and page forward is my upper right. And so like when I'm in Sibelius, it's just like, you know, like you can just slam through pages um, really quickly with those top two buttons set like that. That's uh, I just happened to see that I was uh, looking
0: at my rig here. Does Kensington still make that trackpad? At one point I'd heard they were going to stop making it, but I don't know if they ever did.
2: I had a previous incarnation of essentially the same thing. I used for five or six years and then it, um, it eventually broke down and that's when I looked for another one of those and ended up with the slim blade. And I don't know if they're still made or not, but I know it seems like their driver support kind of comes and goes for Mac. I don't know. You guys know that probably way better than I do, yeah. but, uh, but that, uh, I tell you that's been the, I, and I've owned, I don't know. I have a, a graveyard of, trackballs and trackpads and mice like I'm sure you guys do too but pretty much any new-ish mouse trackball trackpad I will buy you know and just see will it beat what I kind of currently have and so far this Kensington thing has been my go-to for geez five six years ever since it's been made really nice now do you use a mouse as well or just the trackball just the trackball, yeah. And I remember when I first started using a trackball, like 20 years ago, I was going, "Man, this is like impossible," you know. But once I got my thumb thing kind of going with it, and the fingers—I don't know—mouse to me just doesn't feel. It feels like you got to move things, you know. And and again, it's gonna. I sound so lazy by saying this, but I have my setup where I have my chair. Um, in front of all this stuff. And if I have to like lift my elbow off the chair, <laughs> how lazy I am, you know, to reach something that's not good. You know, I like to have everything just like right to where it's right tight. And a trackball allows me to do that. Whereas a mouse, I always felt like I had to move more and use more time and energy to kind of move it, which sounds really lazy.
0: <laughs> it probably also helps you though. I mean, I feel like for a guy like you, you know, your ergonomics are so important. You have to be able to use your fingers to make your living and You've got to right. use the right tools, whatever it is. Yeah, Yep. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I had. I'm so glad you made time to come on the show because I got so many questions answered today. <laughs> some of them about Peter Ferguson and some of them about <laughs> Max, but that's, that's all good. Like I said, I just love to hear when people are making great stuff with their Max and that's what this show is all about. Cool. Well, I really appreciate you thinking of inviting
2: me, in. and and it's it's something I think is pretty obvious. I take pretty seriously and have a real passion and love for, and and I'm am so glad to have had the opportunity to talk with you both both of you guys, and and uh, I'm hoping that somebody might take something away from this of interest.
0: We're going to put some pictures of David's. Um you know a set up in the show notes and then the newsletter we'll also put some music in there if you know if we're allowed to we don't want to get you in trouble um yeah. and the um it, we're going to put a link to your website is there anywhere else people we should point you at are you a big twitter guy or anything you know i i it sounds bad i'm really not
2: a social media guy at all i I always was afraid of getting a uh, uh, true fact. I was addicted to video games when I was like 18, 19 years old, the old arcade sure. machines. And so yeah. I've always been afraid of anything after that. Once I kicked that habit, I kind of like have stayed away. So social media, I'm not really big on, but probably my website is the, um, you know, and, uh, um, IMDB maybe if people are interested in that
0: would be, well, the place. You know, to go. I mean, Maybe you're setting a good example for us cuz you produce a lot of things and you don't do social media. So maybe there's maybe there's something there. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Thank you to our sponsors Smile Matthias Eero, and Hover. Thanks again David for coming on the show. We're so pleased to have you. And uh, we're the Mac Power users. You can find us over at relay.fm/mpu. Everybody head over please, please, please to stjude.org/relay and make a contribution help them out and we'll see you next week.